$20 billion is a lot of money. <laughs> you know, if you talk to DOD, they talk about their work in terms of trillions. <laughs> and, and I feel like a little brother when I talk about billions, but billions is a lot of money. When you talk about what's possible at that scale, I, I don't know if there's much that isn't possible at that scale. And what I mean by that is the kinds of impacts that you can make in the places that you're working, I think are pretty significant. And there are obviously environmental impacts we could make sort of regionally. Uh, same thing with economic impacts at pretty large scale. And then there's a whole lot of social impacts that you could be making. And uh, I'll tell you that the work is, they're not just buildings, right? They have these opportunities to do so much more. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're so excited to be joined by Angel Dazan of, of the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Overseas Buildings and Operations, also known as OBO, in a conversation about how to manage a global design program at that scale, right, $20 billion. Angel Dazon is Managing Director of OBO, where he is responsible for overseeing all facets of the planning, design, engineering, cost development, and project coordination and management of over $20 billion of worldwide diplomatic capital construction projects in development. OBO is the single real property manager for all U.S. diplomatic facilities around the world, managing a portfolio of properties in over 290 locations, uh, valued at over $71 billion. OBO's mission is to provide safe, secure, and resilient facilities that represent the U.S. government to the host nation and supported staff in the achievement of U.S. foreign policy objectives. No small feat. Angel has over 30 years experience in design and construction industry and has previously served in the real estate and design and engineering offices of the U.S. Department of State. He's been recognized for numerous awards of leadership and superior performance at Department of State. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Angel. Thanks, George. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you guys. And we did a little bit before. I'm happy to continue that. Awesome. And as always, I'm joined uh, by Chris Morgan from the Monograph team here. So with that, Chris, do you want to lead us off? Yeah, thanks, Angel. Thanks, George. Thanks, everybody who joined. I see a comment from Julia Gamalina, who is a previous Best Practice guest. Thank you so much, Julia, and the rest of the audience who've come to listen to Angel talk about this uh, incredible program that he's running with his colleagues. So what I wanted to start with is the scale of a $20 billion global design program seems infinite, but I'd love to hear about what's possible at that scale and actually what's surprisingly not possible still at that scale. You know, $20 billion is a lot of money. <laughs> you know, if you talk to DOD, they talk about their work in terms of trillions. <laughs> and, and I feel like a little brother when I talk about billions, but billions is a lot of money. When you talk about what's possible at that scale, I, I don't know if there's much that isn't possible at that scale. And what I mean by that is the kinds of impacts that you can make in the places that you're working, I think are pretty significant. And there are obviously environmental impacts we could make sort of regionally. Uh, same thing with economic impacts at pretty large scale. And then there's a whole lot of social impacts that you could be making. And uh, I'll tell you that the work is, they're not just buildings, right? They have these opportunities to do so much more you know, my parents immigrated through uh, our embassy in, in Manila, the uh, Philippines. It meant something to him. So if I think of just about the building itself and what it can do, it is inspiring to sort of go through this 
portal that's your sort of first impression of the United States and the opportunities that may be ahead for you and your family beyond just the performative functional and all those other kinds of things. It's for me, it's everything. It, it can do a whole lot. And we have all these really kind of wonderful stories of people experience our buildings and having these different kinds of feelings about it, these different kinds of inspirations. And it can, it can change the world because what you put down there as a symbol of the United States can also be a catalyst for development. It could be a, a marker for what it means to be thoughtful about those resources in that country, or you know, what's the real possibility of architecture and engineering and how they can really benefit the human condition. So it is obviously it's first functionally a, a diplomatic platform, but representationally it's about us as you know Americans and our values. And then it has this opportunity to sort of touch on all these sort of varieties of people at different sort of levels in their in their life. So I think it could do anything. And then when, when you talk about what it can't do in terms of scale, I don't think about what we can't do, frankly. And so I feel like we can do everything. It's I think one of the struggles that you have when you have a program of that scale is really how you're impacting individual people and how do you really understand what those impacts are. I think it's hard to sort of figure that out, but I think they're happening and I don't need to quantify it. I need to know that they exist and I need to know that our work plays a role in that. Uh, but I, I really do. I feel like we can do a whole lot of stuff with this program. $20 billion, a lot of money, especially in the locations in which we're working. Um, and then there are some places that there's literally almost nothing but us. And we can be a showpiece for what can happen in the world if you do things the right way. Can you dive a little bit more deeply into that piece of like the community side of, you know, how these embassies might impact communities in general? I'm curious yeah. to know, like, you know, from what are the kind of feedback loops that might be in place early on in the design process when you're thinking about either building a new embassy or renovating an embassy? How does the local community play into that? They do, depending on where we're working, right? So in first world countries, they're much more engaged than others. They have a voice and I think they get to voice concerns and ensure that we're not sort of stepping on this toe or that toe. Do they really influence design in that very significant kind of way? No, because these are diplomatic buildings that have to do something very, very specific. We want to make sure that we're not doing anything negative in those environments. So we're, we're careful about that. When you're talking about, you know, what are the kinds of impacts these things have in their communities? I think communities at a much bigger scale. There's this thing that we have been, that we discovered about 10 years ago, and we've defined it as the embassy effect. And it's kind of what I hinted at before is that you have these economic, environmental, and kind of social impacts in these kinds of communities. And it's a wonderful story. So on the economic side, frankly, not everybody wants us in their cities because we have very specific kinds of security needs and we have a whole lot of people coming to the embassy for visas and those kinds of things. But 25 to 35% of the costs of these projects go directly into those cities. Buying labor, buying materials, those kinds of things. That's a huge economic impact in those kinds of areas. In smaller ways, it's also about us leasing apartments, you know, mm. uh, buying cars, definitely going to restaurants and bars and those kinds of things. But you're making a pretty significant impact. So that first big expense, that 25 to 35% is probably more like triple in terms of real experience in those communities. So in terms of economic, that's huge. You go to London, you spend a billion dollars. That's pretty big. But you go to South Sudan and you spend several hundred million dollars. That's a super crazy, huge impact mm. there. So and environmentally, kind of what we talked about earlier about being a representation is we can do things that be really sensitive about where we are. Like if they're water constrained, we can be doing things that showcase 
how do you gather water, collect it, and reuse it? How do we use less and produce more in, in that way? And there's a lot of that kind of thing that we can start to showcase environmentally. And so in a lot of the places that we go, we're like in India, we were in, in New Delhi, we're doing a new renovation of the of the embassy there that was done by Edward Terrell Stone. Part of what our contribution is, is there's this really big old fountain there. But India has a hard time with water. So it, we shouldn't be probably the ones spraying water all over the place. But we use it as a, like, like we use it as a, a place to sort of capture water and reuse it. And that's what we're showing to people. Like, hey, it's important. And we planted trees so we can help in a small way, help the sort of air quality in a sort of diplomatic enclave. But there's a whole host of those kinds of things where generally we're just going to try to use less, especially around energy and produce more. And then the last one, the social thing is, you know, we're, we're out there teaching people any variety of things, and especially in construction. We're teaching people skills, construction skills in some cases. And you go to a place sometimes, they don't, they don't know. I mean, they're showing up at the job site in flip-flops, right? So you're giving them PPE. You're teaching about all the sort of safety kinds of things. In fact, in, some of our, in our construction contracts, we have things like there's a minimum caloric intake that the workers have to have. Uh, we provide medical care, those kinds of things. In fact, you know, with COVID, we have about 15,000 construction workers on our sites. 90-something plus percent of them are vaccinated by the State Department. So imagine you're able to have a breadwinner for that family. First of all, you're giving them a really kind of wonderful opportunity to work on this thing. You're teaching them a valuable skill, and you're protecting them so they can continue to provide for the family. You're changing the trajectory of some of these families by giving them that kind of skill. That's the kind of social kinds of impacts that we're making. You know, we have this one embassy in Juba. We talked about this earlier before we got on, and um, we're just doing the security upgrade there. And one of the responsibilities that we have in terms of security is just lighting the facility up in a way that we can sort of see what's kind of coming at us. But in Juba, the power is inconsistent and, you know, it's just not all over the place. And so one of the things, experience that we found was that there were kids coming to the embassy to do their homework because it was the one place that had light, light. And that's the introduction that some of the things that we have in our, our facilities is that the first time they're getting introduced to Americans is we're doing something like that. You know, we're providing light so they can do homework or in Haiti, we're providing them blankets and water after a big significant earthquake because ours is the only building that's left standing. That's the kind of thing that socially that we can do. So when you talk about the impacts of the communities, it can be far reaching like economic impacts, but it can be really kind of small that you're helping a family develop a skill that they can take with them for a lifetime. In fact, one of our construction contractors, they taught this guy how to do something. I can't remember what it is. He's been working on constructing embassies for 20 years with this construction company. They moved him all over the world. That never would have happened if there wasn't a program that does what we do. And that's pretty cool. I like being a part of that. That's incredible. I want to talk about a quote that you have from previous interview that you did with us as a part of our 1K interview series. I linked it to the chat. Um, You have this great quote that says, it's a question from our community, which is, what do you like least about the building industry? And your quote was, the architecture industry is undervalued. Good design and bad design cost the same. I'd love if you could elaborate on what you've seen, how that's true, and maybe what needs to change around this question of the architecture industry being undervalued, where good design and bad design cost the same. Yeah, it really comes from a lot of heat that we received from Congress a while back, where we were changing the program because what we recognize is we were providing representational value in our work, right? So did the building was a safe and secure and functional? It was all those things. 
it did it really well out in the suburbs because we weren't buying probably where we need to be doing our work. And they all look the same. So it was this, uh, let me go back and say, we've had a funded new construction program for only about 20 years. And in the beginning, when you go from $0 and you have to sell stuff in order to build stuff, someone gave us $800 million. And our way of saying, all right, let's just go ahead and we can spend that $800 million and build that we did design build. And then we naively believe that you could do this standard embassy design and then just drop it in all these different kinds of locations. Not too dissimilar from a lot of product that's out there. He's like, well, it's the same thing, just replicate it. The reality is it's not the same thing. They're all different sites, right? They're all different kinds of environments. They're different kinds of cultures, 291, 290 kinds of things. We have to recognize that they're kind of different and sort of make the adjustments for that. So we started moving towards this, you know, a, more of a design excellence kind of approach, which was called Excellence in Diplomatic Facilities. And we had a lot of conversations at Congress of like, you're ignoring these sort of performative and functional responsibilities that you have and really just focusing on aesthetics. That to me was the first conversation that we had that what they thought good architecture was having aesthetic value, that making it pretty. And it's completely not that. I think if you, really, if you have a really good architect, what they're doing is they're solving very, very complicated problems for you and they're providing some aesthetic value. But the aesthetics is really kind of a byproduct of solving very, very complicated things. Call it your program, call it the site constraints, call it the environmental kind of challenges, that kind of a thing. And so that's when we start having conversations with Congress. What's the value of architecture? It's not just to make things pretty. It's, it's doing all these things. It's actually bringing everybody together to solve the problems really kind of well. So what we're doing is we're solving complicated problems and we're using architecture engineering in order to do that. For me, the aesthetics of our buildings are coming out of the very complicated problems that we're solving. It's not here's what it's going to look like, and then let's try to figure out how to solve the problems. It's the other way around, that we're solving these things, and the aesthetics is a byproduct of that. And so when I talk about good and bad, bad architecture costs the same, you're still going to get charged the hours. You know, the, a, a bad architect is going to charge you the same amount of hours to do a bad project. They're still going to use the same kinds of software and modeling stuff or whatever. They're still going to charge you that stuff. The stuff that really makes a difference between those two is how does the good architect think about their responsibility, A, and then what are the tools that they're using? Um, we worked with uh, Marlon Blackwell, and one of his things, so I, I will make sure I give him credit for this one, is he says that proportion and scale are free, and they are. All the good things that architecture can provide actually, actually are the free stuff. You know, you have to draw drawings, you have to use software, you have to build hours, but the ideas about how to solve complicated things is essentially free in that kind of technical kind of way. But yeah, and we have a nice sampling of good and bad work. You know, I think bad is some of the, our older product and good is some of the newer ones. They cost the same. But the newer ones are performing, I think, much better. I think they're functioning a, a lot better. They have they're different kinds of attributes that make them sort of more adaptable. And they think they represent us quite a bit more. You know, all of us have a house and you don't buy, you buy a house that represents you in the way that you think, you know, and you don't just buy a three bedroom, two bath, you buy something that really is catered to the way that you live. And that's kind of what you need to do for these kinds of things. We have to design buildings for the way that we're going to be using them, not only today, but the way we're going to use them in 50 years. And that's really kind of hard. You know, imagine buying one house your entire life and having to project out how many family, you know, how many kids you're going to have, what kind of hobbies you're going to have, you know, how you're going to age in this house. No one does that. You just buy a different house. That's not what we're doing. We're buying you know, we're building one thing that has to have the legs to carry us through uh, several decades of life.
that level of, let's say, the qualities of the architecture firms you're looking for, it seems like that's evolved and it's become much more mature and much more sophisticated in, in the sense of what you're looking for. How is that criteria defined today? Is it like, are you looking for something in the way they're communicating the work itself? Are you looking for, you know, is it when someone's talking to, you know, let's say uh, it's part of the RFQ process or RFP process, is it that they're showing the built work as it is, or are they also showing the logic that got to that building? How are you able to tease that out in the beginning? <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard to do. It's like, well, frankly, we are building a relationship with the firms, right? If you're coming here to make money, I'm already not that interested. In fact, when we go hire people, just individuals, one of the questions I always ask is, why do you want to work here? If they something, if they say something like, oh, I love to travel, you know, I want to get a promotion, <laughs> I obviously, I really automatically start, oh, I can't talk to this person anymore. But if they talk about, hey, I think your work is interesting. I think it'd be helpful in, you know, helping to produce it or develop it or whatever. Okay, I'm curious now. But that's kind of, if you know, one of the things that we talked about before we all got on was that we have this sort of design services, indefinite deliverable, indefinite quantity sort of request for proposal that went out a few years ago. And we hired 16 firms. And I, I would suggest that they're the 16 best firms in the United States. But we had almost 200 people apply. Are they all architecture and engineering firms? Yes. So that alone is not the differentiator. And do they have a lot of people, little people? Yes. Do they do big projects, small projects? Of course. 25%, maybe 30% of that 200, I would feel very, very comfortable for them to do the work. I didn't do well in math, so you figure out what that means, like 50, 60 people or whatever. 50, 60 firms probably could really do the work well. So what elevates those 16 firms from those other ones? And it's not the, we do great design because a lot of people do. It's not, we collaborate. We have this really great team structure. We have resources all over the country. And they all do. They all do. Imagine that at some point you're asking these questions, they all have the same answer. What is different though, is the way that they think about our work, right? It's the same thing. It's like, why do you want to work for us? If they start talking about, I think what you do is important. And I think I can contribute to that. And I have all these different, you know, whatever that is, that's interesting. And I, I think that's what we're looking for. I actually know that we're looking for people that are passionate about this work as much as we are. I want to work with somebody that loves this stuff as much as I do. And if I find that person, I know that I can have any variety of conversations, do any variety of things with them because they, we share the same passion. And then the other one I look for is perseverance. We can be a challenging client and then we can have challenging stakeholders, like any variety of stakeholders, whether it be the cities or Congress or whatever. There can be tough people that we have to work with. And sometimes it feels like setbacks, but they're not. They're just opportunities to keep reframing or redefining or whatever it is. Uh, but if you're passionate and persistent, we, you probably have a shot at being really successful in this, as well as having design chops to, to do the work. So... Obviously, you have to have design skills to get in the game. But I think what separates, I think, our architects from others is the those two items, that, that they're passionate about our program and their role and responsibility in it, and that they're persistent through all of the kinds of hurdles that they might face. And what we're seeing, too, in these firms is um, it's one thing just to do the projects. It's a whole other thing to make the program better. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of innovation and modernization that has to happen within the government for us to get to the level where I think we should be, which is best in the industry. And uh, our industry partners can help us do that. Our design partners can help us do that. And as long as they're generous with their thoughts, 
about, hey, have you guys thought about this? Hey, there's a new material over here. I think we can improve. And so that's part of the evolution of what we're looking for is beyond doing the projects, you got to help build the program and help set us up for the next however many years. And what we're seeing is we are winning a lot of architecture, engineering, and construction awards for our projects, which is really great. And now we're starting to get recognized for things that we're doing on the academic side with, with research and climate and these other kinds of things. I think that's the full envelope of our program is not only the buildings, but really kind of all those associated parts and pieces. We talked a little bit about this uh, also before we jumped on here about the in the where the State Department sits and your team sits relative to other, and you mentioned the, the DOD right in the beginning, and, and every project actually is not just State Department. It's actually a mixture of a lot of yeah. other departments itself. Do you find that those best firms are also really effective at influencing how these other constituents within the government also think about buildings or like they think about the outcomes or everything that's being driven? Because you mentioned about like basically taking your OBOs work up a notch, but does it also mean that they're having an outside influence too to these other departments? Yeah, you're exactly right. So one of the things that we've also talked about is our embassies are just not State Department people. They're 50% State Department, 50% other. And that other could be Department of Defense, Department of Justice, and then all the variety of folks below that. We have folks like NASA. We have Library of Congress. uh, You know, we have any variety of different kinds of tenants. We have like 50 tenants that are out there. For each one of these embassies, they have different kinds of needs. Now, I think part of the architect's responsibility is to educate them on what's possible. So when you're speaking to a tenant about what they need, they provide you what they know. And they go, well, I, I want this and I want that and I want this. And the reality is they don't know. So part of our responsibility as OBO is like, let's educate them on what you have and what is possible for the way that you work. So the, more, the better we can understand the way that those tenants work, the better kinds of space that we can provide them. So that actually falls onto OBO to help. We have like somebody here that liaises with that particular tenant so we can better understand what their needs are. And then you know, our industry architects also help shape that conversation when we're in the design process because each one of these folks are part of that. What's hard for us right now is that when you're working with, we call them posts, so an embassy is called a post. If you're working with a particular post, the people that are working there are only there for a couple, three years. So you're getting information from them. Then the next group of people come in and they go, oh, no, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. So it's really important to have that conversation at the headquarters level so that we know that we're providing space that is appropriate at the headquarters level of thinking. So one of the things that we're working towards now is uh, we're developing this thing called MC 2050. And we're working with all these academics like ASU, Harvard, Yale, Northwestern, Virginia Tech. We want to know how is how's the built environment changing over the next uh, 30 years? What do we need to know in order to guide this really kind of heavy government ship in the right kinds of directions? And then understand how do those drivers that impact our tenants? And what do our tenants need to know about hey, the world is going to be more automated. Do you really need physical space to do this? We haven't gotten to that point yet, but that's what we're getting now is we, we're, reach, we're working with some folks. They're starting to talk about what are these big drivers. And then we're going to start talking to our tenants about how do those drivers impact the way that you do your work. And then I think that will, will get us a better sense of what we need to do to tune these spaces for them so that they are really functional for them today, but then able to adapt to what a, a future might be for them in 30 years. Angel, what have you seen as one of the few people in the world who is able to look 
from the client perspective into these extraordinary firms. They're not even employees that have, you know, worked at so many firms as you've been a client of, you know. So I just would love to know when you see so many, when you see like a sample size that's that large of so many great firms, I'd love to know what's common across them. And also what are some like absolutely unique aspects of client service that you've seen amongst some of your service providers? Yeah, we're lucky. We're super lucky. I think we have about 16, 12, 28 probably something in the thirties of firms, some of them that are doing like support services, some of them are doing design services, some of them that are doing top secret design services. I'll tell you one little story about, uh, we were out at Virginia tech on a recruitment trip. And I really believe in making sure that we get the right people to do this work so that we can represent the government in the right kind of way. And so we're talking to students about being interested in government work, which is no easy feat. No one wants to be in the government. And to talk about it, what we do. And so there's this one kid that I work with. And um, first time I really spent time with him. And he was talking to this but the student's potential intern with us about what it was like to work at OVO. And he was talking about he had all these opportunities to work for like Genie Gang. He was coming from S1, but he could work for Genie Yang. You know, he was looking at, you know, Inead, a couple other firms and shop. And he was looking at these two or three different firms. And he says, and all those firms work for us. So instead of this opportunity to work for one firm and to learn about how they execute work, I have this now this job where I can work with 16 firms and learn how they all do it and be able to optimize my approach for designing buildings based on what I'm learning from all these guys. I never asked them to say it. I never asked them to talk about it, but that was his experience that he had exactly what you're describing this inside knowledge in all these different firms and it made him better. And, and I think that's what we have is I'm lucky. I get to talk to a lot of these folks and get to see how they work. And obviously there are some consistent things in terms of like design process that they all do. That's probably where it starts to stop. There are some that are quite a bit more innovative than others and apply it in the way that they do their work in which they're helping us to learn and all these other kinds of things. Some are just delivering the product. You said you wanted this, we're giving you that. Others saying, hey, we're giving you this, but you have this opportunity to do these other things. So they're teaching, right? They're making us aware of what's out there and what's possible. And then for all the firms, there is something good that they're all doing. And we, as an owner, have this opportunity of just stealing from each one of them and going, hey, I like that. I'm just going to go ahead and take that. And it's not stealing when you're in the government. It's probably, I don't know what the hell it's called, but it's, it's not stealing. It's just that's a good idea. We're going to use it. But that's, I think, one of the things that we've been able to get from them. But I think the one thing that's common about all the firms that we've hired is they're all passionate about the profession of architecture. They all approach it a little bit differently and they have maybe a little area, different areas of focus than others, but they all care about what they're doing in architecture. And they really care about our program. And I think that's consistent between all the architects. And then the others, you know, they maybe they innovate a little bit more, you know, they're maybe involved in industry or whatever a little bit more. There's just a little bit different, but it also has to do with capacity. Sometimes, you know, if we're working with a much smaller firm, they just don't have the capacity to be involved in everything. And you have a bigger firm with a couple hundred people that can be involved in a whole lot of different things. And I think that's where you start to get a sense of what the firms are like is, you know, where they're spending their free time. You know, if they're spending their free time at the bar, okay, that's one thing. If they're spending their free time out in industry or out in academics teaching or whatever, say, oh, okay, I get it. This is how, this is what they're doing. They're trying to improve the profession. Uh, improve the industry or whatever, you get a sense of, I'm not saying that any of our guys just go to the bars. I'm just saying that like there's a spectrum of uh, 
of impact that these folks are making. And I think that's where we're getting a lot of the benefit. But they're, like I said, I'm, I'm super proud of all the firms that we have and certainly the impacts they're making with us. But in, in some cases, they're making, making pretty big impacts in the, in the industry as a whole. We also talked a little bit um, about something that's very unique to Hobio and, and how, how you're running things over there, which is, you know, part of what we do here at Monograph is we're trying to provide a, like a forum for transparency around best practices in general, right? Like trying to figure out what are the things that are the same across different firms, but also the things that are unique. And hopefully those things that are unique are elevating the entire industry. Can you walk us a little bit through like that specific program that you've put in place or that, that's, that's at OBO that has to do with something similar amongst those firms that you're currently working with? Basically like the program in which the round table, right? Where you can talk oh, I see, I see. with all the different firms. Yeah. Like we talked previously, all these firms kind of do it a little bit differently. They're having different kinds of experiences because they're narrowly focused on the particular project that they've been given. What we're doing is actually kind of the same thing that Monograph is doing, is exposing these experiences to more people so that we all improve. And so we, we do this thing, we do these sort of architecture engineering roundtables where the architects that we use have this opportunity to share with the kinds of experiences that they're having. So they're able to say, hey, we've experienced this on this project. Hey, watch out for this or whatever. And so they, they share a lot. And what's unique about us is that once you're a part of that stable of architects, you're no longer competing with each other. So you're competing to get in the program. You're no longer competing afterwards. We just assign you work. And what that does for the architects is it lets everybody's guard down and it allows them to share with each other these experiences. So we've had some architects that have been with the program for now, like eight years. Well, they're showing all the new folks, hey, look out for this, watch out for that. Hey, when, when you get your first project, you're going to feel like this. And But they're sharing with each other and they're, they're doing it naturally because A, they want to help each other out because the community is very small, but they also don't have to compete with each other. I think if we competed them more, I, we wouldn't get that. And we're benefiting a lot from that because once they start to share with each other, it opens up a lot of doors for them in terms of how they solve problems for us. So th that is definitely one of the things that we've we've done is we have these roundtables where we give our architects and engineers an opportunity to sort of talk to each other. And we find that to be the most successful when peers get to talk to each other about solving our problems. We get a lot of benefit out of that. And we also have a uh, sort of a peer review process. It's called the industry advisory group. We have like 35 really awesome industry folks that are part of our design review process. And they provide guidance on how these things should evolve. It's not, hey, did you think about this? Did you think about that? It, but it is about pushing those architects to get deeper into those problems and ensure that they're covering all the, all the facets of the work in the right kind of way. And that's a super awesome conversation because it's a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. We actually step away from that. And you start to hear, what do architects talk about with each other when they're trying to solve a problem? What do engineers talk about when you're seeing something really complicated this way? And it's pretty revealing the, what those conversations kind of look like. It's been, I don't know how to say, it. it's been super impactful in the way that we've grown and the kinds of conversations that we have there echo throughout the problem. So once you're able to have this one little thing solved here, we're able to share it broadly in these, these roundtables and, and start to say, hey, we figured this out. This actually works pretty good. It's been crazy beneficial and we're smarter as a group you know i think each of these firms are very very strong and then you put them together with other strong firms they're pretty unbeatable joe i'd love to get a little bit into your history at obo and you know what led you into the organization and how has your career evolved in the time that you've been there 
that's funny. Nobody cares about what my career, how my career evolved. Certainly not me, but I'll, I'll tell you a little. I graduated architecture in 91. I couldn't get a job. And I was like, should I better get another, I got to get a master's in something else. I, I picked an MBA and I thought, well, at least it's business and you can make money in business. I didn't, but wasn't interested in it. The first opportunity I got uh, to get a design job, I jumped at and it was in Dallas and this firm was designing these huge mega churches, which was like 10,000 seat sanctuaries with a production studio, K through 12, a big admin building, a big rec building. And what I appreciated was, oh, there's all these kind of different kinds of programs on one campus and they all kind of have to work together. It has this probably more significant representational value than just doing an embassy. It was for God, right? So I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And then at some point, like four or five years into it, I had this thing, I was at a bar and I was thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I have to work forever. And so I just stopped working and I sold all my stuff. I remember selling my pants at my house, like selling my clothes, sold my 401k. And then uh, a couple of us went down to uh, Central America to, and, we, and our big move was to go buy a hotel. And this is pre-internet, you know, real internet. And so we get down there and find out, hey, you, you can't own anything because you're a foreigner. We're like, oh, okay. So we just hung around for a few months. Uh, but when I came back, I came back to this area, uh, DC, sorry. And try to find a job during Christmas. And I ended up finding a job that paid me good money. And I was like, I'll just do that. And then I looked for another job that actually was something I wanted to do. And I ended up falling into this firm, AECOM. And they had an embassy project. And I was like, oh, it's kind of what I like. All the big program, because like our embassies are not just the administrative building, which is the, you know, the embassy of the consulate proper, but it has like it has support buildings, it has like rec buildings, it has warehouse, it has like mechanical shops. It has these kind of entry portals. It has representational value for the United States. It's like, oh, I really like this. And then I started chasing it. I went there to Cling, to Jacobs. And uh, I remember one of the guys that work here said, hey, why don't you come work for the government? I thought, oh, that's a horrible idea. I don't want to do that. That sounds like a terrible idea. What he was talking about, why don't you help us change? Because I was, I was saying, you guys kind of suck. I don't want to do that. It doesn't sound like a good idea. He goes, why don't you help us change from the inside? And I said, well, I, I only did it, frankly, just to make money. I said, I'll go in, I'll learn how you do your business, and then I'll sell you services on the back end. Because that's how I thought. I was like, I'll just sell you services. I'll go back to another firm and I just will sell you design services or sell you whatever. And then four or five years in, I'm getting ready to go back out. And I had actually was required, not required, but I, my supervisor said, hey, why don't you take this leadership class? And it's called the Excellence in Government Fellowship. And it what it's doing is it's pulling all of these government folks from around the country, putting them in one place and talking about what it means to be a leader in the government. And what I met there were people that were doing pretty impactful things at like IRS or like at NIH. And I was pretty impressed with the, the people, what they were doing. They were just a regular person trying to do something good, trying to make this government better. And I was like, I like that. I want to do that. And I met this lady she got into the government as like, a, I don't know, GS2 or whatever the number is. And, you know, right out of high school. And then the agency she worked for paid for her to go to college, then got her master's. Then when I met her, she was working on her doctorate and she was paying it all back, right? Paying it forward, I guess, maybe is, you know, having the people work for, hey, take advantage of these opportunities, but you, know, you got to figure out how to make us better. And so when I got into the government and learned, figured out, you know, what this opportunity was, I started going crazy about wanting to be in positions that I think had more influence and more impact. And I was in the real estate side. I was on the design side. I went to the project management side and kind of ended up kind of where I am here. And that's kind of the road. The reality is for me, 
I've been now in the government for a super long time, more than I'd like to admit. But what's kept me here for so long has been making this this place, this small little place that we work in, something that I think that I can be proud of and that other people can be proud of. You know, government people, government employees have a really kind of bad rap. And the work that the government does is not well received sometimes. And there's this phrase, you know, good enough for government. And now that means kind of terrible, right? If it's good enough for government, it means it's not so great. But in World War II, good enough for government meant it had met all these rigorous standards. It had been tested. It was the best. So if it was good enough for the government, it was good enough for a regular person. I think we have the opportunity to change that back to that. So when you say good enough for government, it means something really, really good. And so I, I want to be a part of this. And I want to make sure that we are representing ourselves really well and showcasing what government can really become when you're partnering with industry and when you're working with academics to solve complicated problems. And these things exist in little places. I don't think everybody gets the right kind of, I don't know, advertising on it or whatever, but we're doing something special here. And I'm super crazy proud of it. And I, I'm really proud of the people that I work with that, that you know, they've devoted their careers to making sure that we do wonderful work. Wow, that's incredible. I'm kind of struck by a few different directions to go from that point. But I, I think I'd like to dig into a little bit of the change side, like change from the inside. Because I feel yeah. like I imagine most would think that would be literally impossible. You know, not only is it people are finding it difficult to make changes in private organizations, but the idea of making a change in the government. What are some examples of something where you that maybe our listeners could take and maybe reframe how they think about influence in an existing organization instead of starting from scratch, which I think sometimes people can think is the only way to make a change. Yeah, I always think about our organization as being a little startup, you know, a startup that has 1200 people and two and a half billion dollars worth of work every year. But a lot of it is you have to change the way that you think about what you're doing, you know, and, and, and why are you doing it? And if you start to question the why and the how, I think you naturally start to get to a place where what you do is going to be a little bit different. So I think the government is hard to make change and it takes time. And it's one of the things that I, I'm not really good at. I'm a very impatient guy. And so I'm always wanting things to happen faster. But I, I actually spend some time looking at these. We, do, we actually have these monographs that we do of all the little embassies and consulates. And over the last 10 years, we've done some amazing and I'm talking about the 1,200 people that work here. They all contributed to the success of these projects that we are now publishing these little kind of monographs. Part of what we need to be sharing with people is the possibility of doing something great. And then if you're interested at all at being impactful, being important, making a difference, then you have to listen to what that possibility is. What is that opportunity? So for us, we had to start talking to people. What is your job? What is it that you're doing here? And I think when I when I ask folks what do they do, and they give me the narrow thing, I was like. I review this or I design that. That's where I get kind of frustrated. It's like, no, you're, that's not your job. Your job is to do the big thing at the end. And so once people start to understand that, oh, I contribute to the whole thing all the way to the, the finished product and even beyond that, yes, okay. And so we're in this process now of evolving the culture to understand what the real responsibility is to the taxpayers, right? That you're not here for a cushy job. You're here to make a difference in this kind of really kind of big, global, impactful kind of way. And we've been doing that over the last few years. We started to we started to do a lot more uh, modernization efforts to the way that we do our work, a lot more innovation efforts to, to see where we need to go. We've been hiring differently. Like I spoke at this sort of marketing conference 
I spend more time marketing as a client than I ever did as in the private sector. And it's because I need to see, keep telling people, here's what the work is. Here's why you should be a part of it. And I have to do it constantly. So I was talking to these marketing folks. I was saying, you know, as a client where you should be sitting back and just hanging out, waiting for people to come to you, we've had to go out and say, hey, we're serious about getting better. We're serious about doing this. We're serious about, like when we first kicked off this program 10 years ago, we went out to the architectural community and said, we want to do something awesome. We had nothing to share with them. It was just this hope and desire of, of just doing better. And we had to like coax firms to participate. And the word's getting out. But so in terms, like the short answer for what you're saying is like, first of all, you have to kind of know what it is that you want to do, the why, and why do you want to do it? And then you have to start looking at the things that need to change and slowly start to do it. You have to be patient and start keep working at it. You're going to have to train your people today to start thinking differently about the services that they provide. And then frankly, you're going to have to hire new people because you're going to be moving into a different, a different part of your development. You might need different kinds of staff that have different kinds of skills. And you shouldn't be afraid of that. And I know when we first started out, we started being really nervous about it. they don't have any kind of embassy experience. I don't care. I care that they're smart, right? And that they're that they have the right attitude is all I need. Like, you know, government people have notoriously bad attitudes. But if you get the person with the right attitude, relatively intelligent, we're okay. You know, and we we can get there. And they have to be a little curious. But so, you know, it's funny is when we I think in the past, when you hired a government person, they felt very safe and secure that they would not get fired. Uh, and so it allowed them to sort of throttle down their work. And now what we're finding is that people are coming to government and they're feeling safe and secure for working for the government, but they're throttling up, right? They could take chances that you wouldn't do in the private sector. You could start doing things that you probably didn't have the opportunity to do. So here, when we bring people on, we give them a pretty wide aperture of opportunity and impact, and they're just running it. Smart people figure out how to do pretty important things, and you just got to give them the space. And the same thing with our architects. The architects are great, and when they're not, it's because we're too we're imposing too much on them about the way that we want the work done. But if you open that aperture up and go, hey, I think this is important. These are the guardrails. Figure it out. I think we get really wonderful work out of the out of the firms, and that's how we're getting good work out of the people. Open that aperture up, give them an opportunity to be really crazy innovative and successful. And we're benefiting from all of that now. And if I swear to God, you look at our work at 10 years ago and you look at our work now, it is night and day and our work is super crazy awesome right now. That's phenomenal to hear. I mean, the the insights about leadership, specifically around goal setting and how if you just kind of define the North Star for people and don't micromanage their way there, but allow them to figure out creative ways to get there, out of their own desire to accomplish that yeah. that goal is amazing. The other thing that's kind of like maybe un, not talked about as much in terms of leadership often is how repetitive you have to be. <laughs> you probably are constantly beating this drum about what the goal is in order to make sure it's top of mind for people so that they feel engaged with the mission of the organization. Yeah. So what's kind of cool is I've been in the government for like 16, 17 years, but I probably had 16, 17 jobs. This is the one I've been the longest in. So this job I have now, I've been for like six years. And it takes some time to, to change the way that people think about the work. And you're right. It's about beating that drum constantly. It, it's about getting the right people in the right places to do really kind of important things. And we're in this way of thinking about it. So we're, we're in a good place now. I think we still have a long way to go. I think the sky's the limit on our opportunity for impacting the world and, and producing really good work. And, and, but we have to think big. And I, and I think that's kind of what we've been, that's one of the drums that we've been beating pretty hard is that the work that you're doing is impactful on a whole lot of different levels. Once you start to understand that, I think you start to think the work seriously in a different kind of way, because it's not just about architecture. 
all of these buildings that get produced, uh, the architecture is something, right? The building is something, but there's so much impact in the community. The more you get a sense of what that is, I think the better you'll understand what your real value is, not only to the community, but to the industry. We've got some audience questions coming in now. Which successful tactics and strategies have you used to sway large groups of people towards different thinking? And what are some dead ends in trying to do that? I think telling people what to do is a dead end. You know, one of the things I talk about to our leadership here is if if you're using your authority, you're screwed. But if you're using your influence, you have a shot. I think in any organization, you're going to have to use your influence more than your authority. And you're talking to big groups about the stuff. You have to give them something to buy. And I think what people are interested in, I think everybody, I don't care who you are. I think you want to be great. I think the work that you want to do is you want to do important stuff. Give them that, give them that, and then start to shape it. And so part of a lot of what we're doing is here is just talking about the opportunity of the work that we do. Would you be interested in creating really wonderful buildings that impact these communities? Would you be interested in da-da-da? Everybody's going to say yes, right? Would you be interested in doing all these other kinds of things? Okay, would you start to get everybody at that same place? I, I'm, I'm interested. What is that? Then you sell them the timeshare or whatever it is that you're selling. But the, the reality is you got to give them the big idea. And the big idea is not this, I want you to do this little tiny thing. The big idea is, hey, we're doing something awesome here. I want you to be a part of it. And part of your contribution to that is this. And then I think aligning people with what that big idea is, is, is helpful for them. And so I think when you're talking to a big group, it's a lot of making sure that everybody understands the goal and the aspiration. And then there is going to be a need to break break that big group down into smaller pieces so that these smaller subcultures understand what their contribution to it. And you you really are going to have to be pretty consistent in the way that you talk about it because saying it once is not going to be enough. You're going to have to say it pretty consistently. You also have to sort of eat, sleep, and breathe it so that they understand that this is, we're not just doing it. It's something that's important to leadership. Um, but I think when you're talking to a big group, part of what your responsibility is going to just talk about what is that big opportunity if we are all working together and solving a problem, we could probably do this. And it's not just doing a building. It's this sort of broader kind of thing. And depending on what you're, you're doing, I think that's probably where you can get some people rallying around something. And then keep telling them, here's how you're contributing to that big goal that we talked about before. And what's funny is I do spend a lot of time talking to individuals about the work that they do, a lot about taking temperature and see how you're doing and how do you feel like you're contributing and, and making sure if they are seriously doing a good job and, and providing a lot of contributions, I want to make sure I say that. And if they're not, I also need to be honest about that uh, and say, listen, I think you can do more and, and you have to continue to encourage people to keep reaching for the thing. If it was easy, we'd all be doing great work. It's not. It's super crazy hard. And it's all done by people. Each one of those people have different kinds of goals and aspirations. And But you need to get to find the one that is coming between all of them, especially for a particular kind of project. But like I said, most people want to do great work. Most people want to contribute. They want to be proud of something. And I think you can, you can probably find that if you talk to the people about it. Here's another question about leadership around indirect, the indirect approach to leadership to encourage quality work. When do the indirect methods fail and you have to expend some leadership capital and be direct to get a favorable result? Yeah, that does happen. As charming as I may be, Sometimes people don't get it. Sometimes they're the wrong people. Or, or sometimes they, they have the wrong understanding of what the problem is. So I try real hard to make sure I'm not I'm influencing and not being directive. And sometimes it don't work. And I just have to tell people, you're now going to do this. But I have found more often than not, 
you don't have to use it very often. And when you do, it's because those people are already already not aligned with what you're trying to do. That they're being selfish about their time, selfish about their resources, selfish about their contribution. And you're either able to get them out of that. And if you spend enough time with them, you can. But if you can't, it's sometimes you just have to tell people that's what they have to do. I hate doing it. I hate being told what to do. It drives me crazy. So the more that I can start to talk about, you know, hey, we're trying to do this. How do you feel like you contribute? Those kinds of things. I think it's, it's helpful. Yeah, you have to do it sometimes. I really don't do it very often. And I try very hard not to, but sometimes you just have to tell people what to do. It's just not good. It's not good in the long term. In the short term, you can do it, you know, charge that hill, do this thing. And sometimes you need to do that. But I think in the long term, you'll have to come back to that person afterwards and, and make sure you reorient them after you've told them what to do and, and tell them, you know, why you did that, what you need and, and then start building that conversation. But it's, I think in big organizations, probably have my sphere of influence is actually relatively small because I'm not touching everybody. And so every one of the people in that chain of command have to think the same way so that I'm not actually directly impacting everybody personally, but something about the way that I'm doing it is. And I'm hopeful that if I've done it right, that I've coached people up to sort of do it similarly so that by the time it gets to the bottom, they're not hearing directly from me, but they're definitely experiencing uh, my perspective. Can you briefly describe your process for memorializing lessons learned and knowledge gained after a specific project? You mentioned the monograph for each of your projects. Aside from individual buildings and people, is that institutional knowledge carried forward in uh, your whole organization? Yeah, so we were a government bureaucracy, so there's all these kind of after-action, after-project kinds of things. What has happened in the past is that feedback loop was a little too casual, less formal. And, you know, we have, everybody has lessons learned program. How effective are they? Are they focused on all the different facets of your work? Or are they just, you know, focus on, oh, we have to change that standard, change that requirement or whatever. So part of our evolution is making sure that we're learning from all these kinds of things. And we're fortunate that, you know, we're, we're putting out a lot of product every year. And at every phase, we could learn something. And so from the planning side, the design side, the construction side, there is smaller feedback loops in each one of those particular areas. And what we're now doing is corralling all that stuff so that we can start updating standards and start to think differently about how we're executing some of the stuff. So it's in the process of formalizing so that all of these smaller informal things have a process and a place that all this stuff can feed back to. And the reality is sometimes it is a standard. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a, a process change. And then other times it's like, you shouldn't even be doing that. Why are we even doing that at all? And so each one of those places have to have a particular kind of bucket to drop into. So the people are prepared to deal with stuff. That, like right now, we're really good at standards, changing standards. If something doesn't work or whatever, you tell these guys, they update it and the standards reflect that change. Where we struggle a little bit more is on the less sort of tangible things that we, we've learned. So oh, that doesn't work. And, and mostly around you know, cultural stuff. And we're learning that we need to be, have a better understanding of how different cultures use buildings because there's, our populations are 75% local and 95% of the visitors are local. We need to understand how those people use buildings so that it's intuitive in the way that they use it. If you try to impose a Western approach towards some of these buildings for all of those tenants, it just won't go well. They'll use it differently. That's kind of our responsibility to kind of understand how do cultures use our buildings so that we can better inform, probably not a standard in that specific kind of way, but an approach to understanding how those cultures use buildings. But yeah, we, we're in the process of formalizing those kinds of things. Uh, so I think we're in a good place. We're definitely doing lessons learned, uh, but we want to get to a place where 
there's a structured process for doing it consistently. Right now, it's happening. It's happening more organically. You know, you have the right project manager, you have the right design manager, you have the right construction manager. It happens a lot well. So I, I don't want to base on personality. I just want to be sort of process driven. Well, we are near time, and I think we're going to go a little bit over. So I appreciate if you can answer one last question. It's the sure. favorite question of Monograph. If you've listened to our podcast, you might have got a hint of what it is. But essentially, it's one that grounds us back to you know what we care about, which is being human at the end of the day. And so what's the nicest or kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? And we get all sorts of answers here. You know, I, I looked through them because I was trying to cheat. I was trying to figure it out. It's a super crazy hard question. And I thought long and hard about it more than any of the other questions, frankly. It's not an easy question to answer, especially for me. I frankly thought, well, I don't know if people do a lot of kind things for me. But where I landed in terms of response was being forgiven, I think is the kindest thing that, that people have done for me. I make extraordinary mistakes. And I have a wild personality sometimes. And, you know, you get into trouble. You get in trouble in relationships. You get in trouble in whatever. And what I've learned a lot is when someone, you know, has forgiven me for some kind of antic or some kind of approach that really was maybe inappropriate or whatever, and given me an opportunity to try again. And, but that approach for me has worked really well. It's not the, don't do that. It was, I forgive you for treating me that way or whatever. And uh, it's helped me to learn a lot about the kindness of others, especially towards me. And I've been able to sort of share that approach with others. It's, it's helped me quite a bit. So no one's really helped me out in my career in that kind of meaningful way. Uh, I actually didn't want to be an architect. I wanted to be an artist. My dad told me no. So it's not like I had anybody saying I wasn't given the gift of architecture. I wasn't the gift of whatever. But you know, I think some of the kindest things that people have done for me has forgiven me for some of the things that I've done and I've learned and grown from those kinds of experiences. And uh, I think that approach is actually help me out quite a bit. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. I mean, that's, I think it kind of shows in your approach to leadership too, in a way. I think it's going through those experiences can really make for better leaders ultimately. So yeah, I really appreciate that. I think uh, at, at the end, I think we can kind of, uh, I'll just kind of give a little bit about what we're doing here at Monograph for those that are new to Monograph in general. So Monograph is being called a game changer basically in the industry, especially for small firms. Principals, operations leaders, and office admins are using Monograph to run firm operations and manage the back office. It's designed for architects, by architects. So a lot of us actually have a background in the industry. As you notice, we're here to bring these type of conversations around leaderships to the industry in general to help influence some change. Co-managing partner uh, Tom Jacobs of Craig Sexton said how medium-sized firms can operate like larger firms because they're using Monograph. So Feel free to try it out yourself at monograph.com for a free trial, or you can book a one-on-one demo. Angel, thank you so much for joining us in this. I I feel like I absorbed so much from this conversation. It was like, I like to use the phrase of insights per minute, and the insights per minute on this one was incredible. I'm just so uh, thankful that you're able to come on and talk to us about what you're doing in the program at OBO and also just give us some more insights into how architects could also be better. Because I think even in some of the things you're talking about, there's some insights there for firms to be able to plan their own, own organization. So really appreciate your time as Chris as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.